Father, it is a wondrous love you've given us in Christ. We pray that you will help us to know more of your love and your heart. We ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. The world we live in is kind of bad shape. All you have to do is watch news on television or read on the internet or a newspaper. And story after story after story is telling us of the problems of the world and the difficulties that people are facing and the struggles in this country and around the world. And we hear it so much that it feels overwhelming. And because we hear it so much, I I think there is a tendency to feel a little bit inoculated about the stuff that people go through. Pain and suffering and the difficulties of this world. And that in itself would be bad enough. But when we begin to feel inoculated about the problems that people are facing, it also causes us to think that God is inoculated about those problems too. And that our hopelessness and uncertainty and maybe apathy toward the things that people are living with might just be the same feelings that God has. I suspect that Israel comes to the place that they feel that way. The world in which they live and the, and the world of people around them, not all that different from ours. It's a mess. And after a while, they begin to wonder if it's ever going to be any different. And they take the next step And begin to think that not only are they a bit apathetic toward people's needs, God is too. And it's into that mindset that the prophecy of Isaiah is given. Isaiah has a lot of things to say to Israel about what is to come and how God is going to be involved in that. And some of the things that Isaiah says are not pleasant for them to hear. Some of them are wonderful. But when we come to the 42nd chapter of Isaiah, we begin a section that is typically referred to as the servant of the Lord. And for the next 13 or so chapters, we get an image of this servant of the Lord who is coming. Now, the servant servant is used in two ways in Isaiah. One, it refers to Israel. And they are God's servant. But in this particular chapter and in beginning in chapter 49 through 45, it's evident that the writer is no longer talking about Israel. He's talking about a person. And we believe that person is the Messiah, even Jesus Christ. And as Isaiah writes to Israel about the servant of the Lord who is to come, he is writing to us about Jesus. 
and about what his coming into this world is going to mean for the world. In this 42nd chapter, we find that one of the elements of the coming of the servant is justice. There's something about the coming of the servant that God is going to use him to bring about justice on the earth like it was when he created the earth. If you look at at this chapter, verse 1, he says, He will bring justice to the nations. Verse 3, in faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. Verse 4, he will establish justice on the earth. Verse 7, oh, he will come to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. The coming of Christ, one element of the coming of Christ is about justice. Now, when we talk about justice, we tend to think of fairness or equality or equity. And that is a part of it. But the justice of God is so much bigger. The Hebrew word for justice talks about justice in a systemic sense, about society and culture. The justice that is being described here is is about how people are viewed and valued and how this culture operates And that's what God is wanting to speak to. We live in a world, as did Israel, where might makes right. Where the one with the most toys wins. Where the biggest army gets what it wants. We live in a world where the most educated and the most gifted are the most valued. We live in a world where... The place you're born determines your worth and value far too often. We live in a world where the most vulnerable are viewed as existing in order to be used. Whether we do that consciously or subconsciously. And into that mindset of injustice comes the servant. The justice of God causes us to think about how the world operates and how people are treated and valued, whether they are like us or not like us. What I find interesting is that in the first sermon that Jesus preaches, recorded for us in Luke chapter 4, He goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, and he picks up the scroll of Isaiah and he reads this passage or part of it. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Luke says he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is why I'm here. So that the people who have been ignored and abandoned and have been told are worthless and unwanted might understand that God has a different way of seeing them. Of helping people who are enslaved 
to be set free. Isaiah 41 is all about idolatry and how it has grabbed the people and and taken them not just into, into sin, but into enslavement. And the servant comes to bring them out of that and to set them free. And the heart of the cross is that Jesus comes to set people free. From all that enslaves us, from sin that enslaves us, and the way the world operates because of the sin that enslaves us. And this justice is not just for a few people. It's not just for a select few people. It's for everyone. I suspect that for the, for the Jews, they were thinking we're God's chosen people. And so God is really concerned about justice for us and maybe for others. I wouldn't be surprised if sometimes that mindset slips into our thinking as well. I mean, we are God's people. Justice is concerned about us more than others. But he says in verse 1, justice will come to the nations. Verse 4, justice will come on the earth. Verse 6, he comes as a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. In verse 5, God refers to himself as the creator of all, the one who gives life and breath to every person. And his justice is for all whom he has created and given life because he loves them and cares for them. It is really the message that God gives to Abraham in the 12th chapter of Genesis when he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All of God's creatures are a part of of his plan for justice. And that means people who are like us and people who are not. That means that God is just as concerned about about society's effect and value and significance on Muslims as he is on Christians, on Buddhists as he is on Christians, as atheists as he is on Christians. Because God cares for and loves the whole world, not just a few. So our problem is we tend to think of justice as our side winning. But justice is never about winning and losing. It's about putting right what is skewed and out of order and out of place and wrong for everyone. And so we become less concerned about winning and more concerned about treating people as fully human. As valued and significant and important to us because they are to God. And to working in every way we can to begin to change the systemic nature of society that devalues people, that uses people, that makes people think that because of where they were born or how they were born, they're not as worth. They have not as much worth. It's important to God. It's important to us. Why else would Jesus care so much about the poor and the vulnerable? Because no one else does. And because society is set up to be against them and to take advantage of them. And Jesus comes to change that.
Even people in the church wrestle with this. Matthew 12 presents an interesting connection to this passage in Isaiah 42. Jesus is out with his disciples on the Sabbath. They're walking through a field. They're hungry. They break off some heads of grain. And there are the Pharisees. I'm not sure where they were in the field, following them, hiding. I'm not sure. But they they jump out and say, hey, you're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath. You know that. And Jesus says, don't you remember when David and his troops were, were out trying to escape and they were hungry and they went in, into the temple and they took the holy bread and God said, that's okay. But that's not the end of it. Jesus goes into the synagogue, still the Sabbath. There's a man there with a deformed hand. Pharisees look at the man, they look at Jesus. They say to Jesus, so is it lawful to heal him on the Sabbath? Jesus says, would you pull an ox out of the ditch if he fell in on the Sabbath? Of course you would. Then why couldn't I heal this man? And Jesus goes to the man and he heals his hand. And the Pharisees, whom you would think as religious people, would be so excited about this amazing miracle, instead walk out plotting how they can kill Jesus. And Matthew says, After this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I've chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. In the name of the, in the, his name, the nations will put their hope. Jesus comes to set people free And to change the way we think about one another. And Jesus is addressing the systemic injustice of religion that values rules over people in need. I'm not talking about truth. I'm talking about the rules that we create as a part of our religion. That get in the way and become more important to us. And being the presence of Christ to people who are in need. But I think the most amazing thing about the servant who comes here, and we will see this in coming weeks as well. The most amazing thing is that God brings about his purposes of justice in the world through the unexpected means of faithfulness. And gentleness and mercy and grace. Verses 2 and 3 tell us. He will not shout or cry out. Or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. When we think in in our society, in our world, that injustice has been done, our most typical response is to raise up an army, raise up a group of people, and let's go make it right. That's how you do things. But the prophet tells us that the servants, servant of God, will carry out God's plan in a completely different way. 
He's not going to smash people who are oppressing others. In fact, he is going to be so gentle that a reed that's been broken and bent will not move. And and a, a, a light that is barely visible will not be blown out. It is in that spirit of quietness and humility and gentleness that the servant comes to bring justice. Not everyone responds well to gentleness, though. Gentleness tends to get trampled on. Gentleness tends to get taken advantage of. Gentleness doesn't typically win battles or elections or public opinion on important social issues. But the servant is is asking us, despite how things operate in our world, do we have enough faith to trust God's plan? Can we believe that Jesus' way of gentleness and patience and compassion of the cross is the right way? Why do we so often miss that? I suspect it's because it's just so contrary to the way things are done in our world. It's so contrary to the way things are accomplished in this world and how we value and measure success in this world. We tend to join the take no prisoners kind of perspective. Of the kingdom. But God's answer to oppressors is not more oppression. And God's answer to, to arrogance is not more arrogance. It's in quietness and humility and simplicity and gentleness and faithfulness that He will take all of the evil upon Himself and return grace. And that's why the cross is power. What looks like defeat is victory. And we we tend to want to let people know about God's power. We want to sing and dance and shout, see, I told you so. And we tend to follow the same patterns of coercion, threats, intimidation, exaggeration that everybody else uses. I mean, that's how you get people's attention in this world. That's how you get things accomplished. And we've come to believe that that's not only a good strategy, it's the best strategy. And it's the only appropriate strategy. Because we want to be winners and we want to be the power brokers. And we want to be the ones who get our way. And we've been pushed too long and we feel like it's time that we can push back. And so when I read about some people in a small town and... North Carolina, that are threatening a lawsuit if the city doesn't put a Christian flag and only a Christian flag on their war memorial. I'm not sure we're getting it. And we can look at them and say, wow, how crazy is that? But we do stuff like that in different ways all the time. What we don't realize is that this injustice of society is so built in to how we think and how we understand this world and operate in this world, we don't even see it half the time. 
Which is why the cross is so important. It's why we need to keep our eyes focused on the cross and remember that the way to get things done in this world is completely different than how we might normally and naturally think. It's through gentleness and faithfulness and righteousness through the power of the gentle gentle crucified Christ. But don't misunderstand. Gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness in Christ is strength. Christ disarmed his enemies and he did it with love and he did it with grace and he did it with gentleness, but he has disarmed them. The battle is no longer in doubt. He won. What we have to get into our heads is the way he wins. We're gathering here at this table in a few moments. And this table is is certainly not a symbol of human power and might and force. It's a symbol of sacrifice and humility, of surrender, and even of death. We're grateful what this table tells us about God's love and compassion and mercy. But can we see it as a means of God, the most unusual and unsuspecting means of God for changing the world? Will we embrace with his servant God's plan for bringing his justice into his world. Please pray with me. Most holy and gracious God, in infinite love you made us for yourself. And when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and even to death, In your fullness of time, you sent Jesus Christ, your only son, to be the redeemer of the world. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in human likeness. And he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. He took upon himself our sin and our death. And he offered himself a perfect sacrifice for the sin of the whole world. By his life, he broke the power of sin. By his death, he conquered death. By his resurrection, he gives us eternal life. And we are so grateful. On the night he was delivered to suffering and death, he took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, and gave it to his disciples, saying, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples, and said, drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. As we recall 
your son's suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension, as we look forward to his coming again in glory, we ask you to accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, which we offer in union with Christ's sacrifice for us as a living and holy surrender of ourselves. So send the power of your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts that in the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup, we may know the presence of the living Christ and we may be renewed by his body and cleansed from sin by his blood and that we may serve you in unity and faithfulness and joy until the day you bring us with all of your saints into the fullness of your eternal kingdom. We pray this, Father, through Christ. Amen.